1: I love scotch, I love scotch. Scotchy, scotch is got scotch. Here it goes down, down into my belly. Mm-mm-mm.
2: This brand is truly exciting and so glad that they are starting to make a positive impact. Little Bean Soapery is a woman-owned small business based in Northeast Pennsylvania. Little Bean Soapery does so much as all products are handcrafted and offer many different things for both men and women. Soaps, scrubs, body butters, bath bombs, solid cologne, and much more. Little Bean Soapery also does things for special occasions such as birthdays, Mother's Day, Father's Day, and special seasonal gift sets. But also, let's not forget large orders for party favors by request. The great things about all products is that they are crafted to be nourishing on the skin. If you wish to check them out, please feel free to visit littlebeansoapery.com. Any questions, please feel free to also email littlebeansopery at gmail.com for custom inquiries and or ask anything else you wish. Tell them that Elena from Crazy Train Radio sent ya.
0: Not all football helmets are created equal. Zenith.
1: Hey, this is Brad Johnson, former NFL quarterback, uh, Tampa Bay Super Bowl champion, and uh, thanks for having me on Crazy Train Radio. Hey,
0: folks. It's your least favorite host in the podcast world, Croc, Jonathan Steele.
2: And I'm Elena, your favorite host from the Emerald Isles.
0: Boy, do we have a good one for you today. This next guest, it's a huge surprise that he has a growing audience on TikTok as Big Bad Brad 14 because I am of a generation that remembers this gentleman playing 177 games in the NFL with four different teams, such as being drafted at Minnesota, Washington, little known uh, Super Bowl team that beat where I'm from, in Philadelphia to get to the Super Bowl that year, and the Dallas Cowboys. But it's nice to be able to talk to this 17-year vet and Super Bowl winner, Mr. Brad Johnson. Brad, how are you?
1: Doing great. Appreciate you having me on your show, buddy. Thank you,
0: man. And I'm not going to throw this out there because that's not my business to do so, but I'm glad everything worked out for what we were talking about privately, a like little family matter, but knock on wood, glad everything's yeah. well. Yeah. And everything's
1: good. All good. All good.
0: Yeah. And I was glad to hear that once he, when you first told me, I'm like, my stomach was in knots, but you're like, all is good. So, yeah. I was like, Oh, you know, so other than that, how have you been?
1: Doing good. Doing good. I got, um, uh, we live in Athens, Georgia and, um, I'm coaching high school football as a volunteer coach, so I'm a guy that coaches quarterbacks, and I, I get all the equipment out every day and the water bottles and <laughs> coach high school kids JV and varsity. So I stay busy doing that, and then uh, my oldest son uh, Max, he's a quarterback at LSU, and then my younger son Jake, he's a senior. He'll go there in uh, January. So stay busy doing family things and and coaching football.
0: Well, that's a good thing, and obviously. You don't have to toot your own horn, even though at the time when you were drafted by Minnesota, there was nine. How many rounds was there? I know you were drafted in the ninth round.
1: Yeah, there was uh, 12 rounds at that time. Okay, there was uh, 20, 28 teams and 12 rounds.
0: So go figure that one. Do the math, folks. But do these kids you're coaching with know of your professional career?
1: Yeah, they'll, they'll know that I played quarterback in the NFL, and they know that I won a Super Bowl and those kind of things. But honestly, they want to be coached. They don't want to hear about my career or me tell stories. They really want to be coached and have their own careers. And, and for me, I want to, I'll want point to the kids. And so I've been through every high and every low in sports, all the way through You know, youth football and middle school and high school and college and pro. And I've done it all on the good and the bad. And as I'm able to share stories, when when kids are going through a tough times, they throw in interceptions and lost the game. I can I can give them a story and I can help them through it. And they when they celebrate, I want to help them reach their highest level. So for me, coaching a kid, if it's helping him be a middle school starter, then that's it. If it's a guy that's in high school trying to go college, then I'm trying to get them to be the next level that they can be. So whatever it is, I just want to see kids reach their full potential.
0: Well. Speaking of that, and that's awesome to hear, but do you find that the kids you're coaching respect you more as far as a coach because you can speak from experience that you had a good, let's see, 17 years in the pros, five years, 22, 23 odd years there as a football player or quarterback in some form or
1: fashion? Yeah, th- th- all those th- all those are great credentials and things like that. But um, it's just it kind of opens the door. But then you got to get in there. You got to coach the kids. You got to teach them formations, plays. You know what might happen. And but I think the way I teach and kind of help kids, they you know they kind of get that respect and just by teaching them and and helping them become the player that they are. If I if I couldn't help them, then they wouldn't care about my career. So, uh, but it's it all kind of goes it goes hand in hand.
0: Well, speaking of that, how would you describe your teaching style? Because from what I doing some homework here, get ready for our conversation on several different outlets, both how you described yourself, but also how coaches have uh, talked about you. You were a guy that tried to learn systems and you would use different, say, color markers. All right. The guy's going this way. This guy's doing that. Yeah. You tried to learn systems. So do you use that in trying to coach, or how do you how would you describe your coaching?
1: I want to give every kid um, every chance to be successful. So it might be a particular handoff and or a toss. Play. Let's say a toss play and the and they the, they're underneath center. So I would say if the fullback is offset, then go ahead and do your toss. But if the fullback is behind the kid, I might beware beware there might be a phone you might hit your fullback so let's talk to the tailback maybe delay account and be able to pitch it out there see your pitch see him catch your pitch and then follow the ball especially at the end of the game um, as far as a play uh, it might be an RPO I'll tell them the, the positive of the play and the negative of the play and so this might be it might or it might be a waggle You uh, might be a rollout and and this is the look you want. But if you don't get the look, this is something bad that might happen. So you might want to check the play away from the blitzer and the slot, those kind of things. So I will just tell them these are the things that can come up and try to encourage them in every way that they can, you know? So if a kid throws an interception or has a bad fumble or something. I'm not, I'm not the guy that's going to yell at them. I'm I'm sure they already feel bad enough as is. I'm encouraging, but I'm going to, I'm going to coach them too. And be tough on every, every kid wants to be coached and, and reach their full potential. That's that's kind of what I try to do.
0: Well, one more question with that. With that age group, middle school and high school, do you guys tend to use a lot of film or tape from the previous games to point these different things out?
1: Yeah, there's no doubt about it. I mean, now the access to film is, is easier. Kids can watch their film immediately after games or after practice, so they can watch it, but then but it might just kind of point out the, the p- plays that need to. To kind of hone in on, and uh but but you know what the other part of it, it's really hard for kids too because there's you have school all day and you have homework at night and so you have to be limited you can't just overload the kids you kind of got to be very detailed and kind of quick to the point with you know how much film that you are able to share with them and in the time being with them
0: totally understand but you you brought up your boys Max and Jake Jake go to LSU next year but max already being there. I heard that Max was actually a left-handed quarterback. So is that unique as far as quarterbacks go? And would that help or hurt him as he goes on in college there?
1: Yeah, you know, it's it's when you look at the percentage of America, how many left-handed people are there? So let's say there's let's say there's 10%. So that 10%, and then you kind of do the math, how many go down? And then and then the, the math of how many of those kids that can really throw a ball. Are they really quarterbacks, or do they become baseball players? In baseball, you can only play a couple positions. You can only you can only play first base, uh, maybe outfield, and maybe pitch. Otherwise, it's a right-handed game, so it's limited a little bit to the quarterbacks that actually play. But as far as playing the game, it doesn't it doesn't change anything. Um, and what I really learned about teaching left-handed kids or Max is really show them the right way. So a lot of times, people teaching a left-handed kid they'll try to actually even though they're right-handed they'll try to show them something left-handed and it looks awkward and so people that are left-handed they get used to learning by watching and so if you show them the correct way even though it might be right-handed they can flip it in their mind so those are the things that kind of come up with max show him the right way but don't show him the awkward way (laughs) that makes sense
0: no it does
1: but and and a little bit you know, for play callers, what's a little bit different, you know, you may want to roll a right-handed kid out to the right, a left-handed kid to the left. You don't want to put them in a bad situation where they may have to flip their hips or are or, or stuck in the boundary having to throw an awkward throw across their body.
0: Well, I know you're no stranger to being banged up as far as during your playing career. I know the game I mentioned where you guys won in Philadelphia, I heard you broke some ribs there. And I know you've you've said you've had some issues with your knees and going to need replacements and such. You know, football is a physical game. But fortunately, rumor had it is you didn't have too many head injuries. But obviously, that's a conversation that's been had the past several years, especially since that movie came out, Concussion and everything else. So as a parent with your sons playing football, and your personal experience of the physicality of it, what were your thoughts as a father when your boy said, hey, we want to try this football thing out?
1: Yeah. My kids want to play at an early age. It's not for everybody, number one. Uh, My kids started playing at age eight, age nine years old. Um, They really never had many major injuries, to be honest with you. It's a knock on wood. Uh, but I think always, you know, it can be gymnastics. It can be soccer. It can be baseball. There's going to be injuries. There's going to be things, a price to pay. So, uh, obviously, when you put a helmet on and pads and a mouthpiece, there's going to be a collision in football. So, I think, you know, hit what you see. See what you hit. Uh, learn the proper way early. Uh, keep your head up. Hit what you see. You, you're keeping your head up, you know, and, um, and those kind of things. So learn the proper techniques. And then being able to take care of your body physically, being in great shape and lifting weights and those kind of things. So it is not for everyone. It is not. But I would encourage kids if they want to do something, when they have a passion about it, then go ahead, go ahead and do it. So, but learn the proper way, but any sport that you play, there's there's or gymnastics or cheerleaders or whatever may be there. There's, you know, there's, there's, you know, go ahead with a little bit of caution also.
0: Yeah. And no matter what you do, and this line always stuck with me because I have some friends and acquaintances in professional wrestling. And obviously that's got physicality, but showmanship and all, but the line that stuck with me was you can't fake gravity. So no, like you said, no matter what you do, there's going to be some sort of risk. But no doubt
1: about it. Yeah, no doubt about it. And that, that's just part of, that's kind of what you signed up for. If you, if, if kids want to ride horses, there's, there's a risk. If you want to play <laughs> anything you do, there's going to be some kind of risk. I mean, riding a car, there's going to be a seatbelt. I mean, so I, football, it's a, it's a dangerous sport, but there's a lot of sports that are like that. But I think, you know, I, I, I talk about the camaraderie, the teamwork, the work ethic, um, all those kind of things, like accountability, dependability. All those kind of things are very important. I think those are the kind of attributes that we've learned from football. So if any kid or parent asked me about it, I, I would encourage them to play, but learn the proper technique.
0: Well, you know, and I know I'm jumping around here and you just brought something up about the camaraderie and such, but two things with that, when you retired, and obviously in other interviews I heard you give, you talked about, you knew it was time, just from what your body was telling you from your knees and everything else. But would you say that camaraderie from being in a locker room and such was the biggest thing you missed?
1: Yeah, you, you miss, you miss being a part of something, you know, you miss being a part of, of trying to, you know, going to meetings and going to practices and lunches and, and just the, the time you are in the locker room and then the time you spend in the huddle and then the practice time and then getting ready for a game. And it's so rewarding to, to score points and touchdowns and then to win a game and know that what the price it took each week to, to get that done. So yeah, those, but you know, at some point your body, your body fatigues out and, but mine wasn't just done from football. It was all the workouts and playing tennis and running miles on the road and training. And so it's just, it's all the pounding that took place over time, but my body's healthy now, but yes, I will need a couple of knee replacements and, um, that's, you know, that's, that's kind of the risk you take also. But, but yeah, I miss the guys and, the, and the, you know, playing and those kind of things. And now I kind of get that from the coaching standpoint, just being around other kids and trying to be a part of teams and trying to win games and win championships.
0: And it's great that you brought up the camaraderie because I know when I initially reached out to set this up with you through uh, Instagram, you were going to Canton to see a former teammate get inducted in John Lynch. How was your experience in Canton going to support a, a former teammate in John?
1: Yes, yeah, pretty awesome. The Hall of Fame is just an incredible, incredible honor. I've been there uh, three or four times. Uh, I went with Chris Carter and Warren Sapp made it and Derek Brooks. And um, it's, a, it's an unbelievable event that takes place up there. And there's been so many great NFL players that have, that have played the game, but only each, you know five to seven guys get inducted to the Hall of Fame each year. So it's a very limited group. And and John Lynch, uh, we were teammates for three years in Tampa. I played against him a bunch when I was in Minnesota and Washington, and then I uh, actually I played against him when he went to Denver. So we faced each other a bunch. But we were—he's my—he's a great teammate, great leader. And so we made the trip up to celebrate his Hall of Fame induction. It was an incredible party that he had. Uh, the night before the induction had uh, you name it, who's who was in the building. He had, he had people from uh, the Denver Broncos and 49ers and Tampa Bay that were there. John Elway was there. Peyton Manning was there. Uh, Lionel Richie led the concert. It was, a, it was an incredible event. And then he, had, he spoke the next night and got his gold jacket and, and the bust and everything. So um, he was probably one of the best leaders I was ever with on any team. So I'm thankful to call him a teammate and a friend and obviously a great player.
0: You guys were actually roommates when you were teammates in Tampa, right?
1: Yep, we were uh, roommates for three years, yep.
0: So obviously, from what I can see, outsider looking in, John has so much respect across the board, both on the plate NFC, AFC, now a general manager and Hall of Famer. What is it about John, and you know him quite well being a teammate and roommate when you traveled, what is it about John that commands such respect from everybody across the board?
1: Wow, it's, it's every attribute you could ever think of. Uh, work ethic, uh, trying to be the best player that you could be, accountable, great teammate, there every day, uh, spend time with the trainers, equipment guys, sports information guys, he did a study in the film, um, helped others get better. Besides, he encouraged others just besides himself. He competed and he performed on game days. And he was consistent over a period of time. It wasn't just a one-hit wonder. Uh, he did, over time, one, part of one of the greatest defenses in the history of football in Tampa Bay. And then he did it in two different divisions uh, in the AFC and the NFC when he, went to, when he went to the Denver Broncos. So, But a great leader, great teammate, no doubt about it.
0: Now, obviously, and like I said, I know I'm bouncing around here, but I know you went to school at Florida State, and at the beginning of August, unfortunately, we lost Bobby Bowden. So would you say Coach Bowden had similar uh, attributes that you say in John?
1: Yeah, I mean, Coach Bowden, he lived, to I think, 91 years old, Uh, won 377 games, He was at Florida State for 34 years. I don't know if you'll find any coach (laughs) that can be at one place for 34 years. You know, so he did it over decades. He built up Florida State from a a no-non-program, a no-non-school to a national brand. Um, A head coach that um, for 14 straight years had one of the top four teams in the country. That's never been done. And with him – came class, came wisdom, came, um, innovation of the game. Um, and he was, you know, also pastor and preached to many and shared his faith with all. So, uh, just incredible honor to say he was, he was my, my coach in college.
0: Well, it's mind blowing. I'm sure I'm missing names, but you played for him. Some guy named Deion Sanders, who's a hall of fame played for him. Another guy that, I always heard had when it came to football, but in all attributes, Ron Simmons played for him. You know, it's just like unbelievable that guys he's coached through the, his years.
1: Yeah, he was, he, you know, he, he got there in 1976 and yeah, and maybe they went in one game, two games at that time. And then in early 1981, there, there's a movie called the Bowden dynasty. everybody gets a chance go watch the movie called the Bowden dynasty. Maybe it's on Netflix or something. And, he kind of explains his whole career, but 1981, he took Florida State National. He went and played uh, – he played uh, um, Nebraska, um, I think LSU, uh, Ohio State, um, Notre Dame, and there's one other school, and he beat those teams. And so he put them on the national level as far as, – and they started recruiting better. And then that was about, you know, 1987, that was the beginning of when it all started happening as far as – trying to compete for national championships. So he did it over time. Everyone, he's respected by all all the great players and all the great coaches that came through there.
0: Well, jumping back into your pro career, you know, and I appreciate the work ethic because right off the bat, you, you were behind two guys in Rich Gannon and Sean Salisbury. And then, you know, during your third year, Warren Moon came in how much pressure was there for you to, Hey, I want to play here. I know you spoke up and went to the world league and really got your oats, I would say, but did you feel a lot of pressure with having all these great, not only QBs, but players around you?
1: Yeah. When I was drafted, I was like, we talked about earlier. I was the ninth round pick, 227th pick of the 1992 draft. I didn't really play much in college. So, there wasn't really pressure for me to play. There's more pressure to learn NFL football on my part of it and reach and start and become a better quarterback. But at the time, you know, Rich Cannon was the starting quarterback, and, you know, he ended up playing a long time, was the MVP of the NFL. We actually, you know, later we played against each other in the Super Bowl, and then Sean Salisbury was there. He was kind of a mentor of mine at that time, too. And then Jim McMahon came in there. so And then obviously I obviously had Warren Moon, but I had a lot of guys to learn from just kind of the way they handled themselves, way they handled practice, meetings, uh, how they dealt with throwing touchdowns, how they dealt with throwing interceptions, winning games, losing games, how they dealt with the media. So those were kind of things for me uh, to kind of watch them and learn from them. And so when my time came, I'd be ready for my time.
0: Well, speaking of that, obviously you can watch from a distance and how people act and present themselves on and off camera. But were these guys – want to answer questions for you if you said as veterans and a younger guy coming up.
1: Yeah, we got along great in the meeting rooms. So, you know, sometimes you're, you know, fly on the wall and just kind of be more of a sponge and learn from the conversation that's taking place or how they're game planning. But it wasn't like you sit there and ask them question, question, question. You really kind of just, you mix in and you learn and kind of grow. You ask questions when you have one and then You know, usually the the starter would talk to the coach and in the meetings, and you just kind of sit back and have it and then kind of be ready for when your reps come too. So, but you got to be more of a sponge um, in those kind of situations.
0: But I mentioned the World League there. I believe you played in London for. I did.
1: Yep. What
0: was that really, as I put it earlier, where you got your oats and said, hey, I can truly lead a team?
1: Yeah, it was a big deal for me. I'd only started uh, six or seven games in college, so I didn't really play much in college. Uh, my first three, four years, I didn't play much in the pros either. <laughs> I didn't get very many reps in practice or games or those kind of things. So uh, I got training camp practice, but maybe a few scout team reps here and there. But So I needed to go play. I needed to go make plays. I needed to make mistakes. I needed to lead a team. Um just kind of be the guy. We played 10-game season over there in the spring and uh, played against, uh, there's Amsterdam, Barcelona, Scotland, uh, the Rhine Fire, Dusseldorf. So it's it it a great time, of, you know, pretty cool to live in London for two and a half months and then play 10-game schedule and just kind of grow as a quarterback.
0: Well, was there a particular moment that you remember having where you said, hey, I got to sink or swim. I got to go play, whether it be the World League or whatever. A- how have you coordinated that but do you remember a specific moment where you said hey i got whatever happens happens but i need to have a full shot yeah
1: yeah and uh the world league it it, it took place like in the late 80s and i think it, it went extinct in 1990 i think and then so you know i'd been with i got drafted in 1992 and um been there for three or four years. I remember in late December of that year, I went to Brian Billick, who's the offense coordinator, and I told him, I said, man, I heard about this league that's coming out, and, you know, I know I'm under contract with Minnesota Vikings, but I'd like to go play and get some game experience. And uh, so we looked into it after the season was over. I got allocated to the London Monarchs, and uh, over there, there was only 38 players on the team. Eight of them were foreigners, so you had 30 Americans. So some guys were allocated to the team, and some guys were just They picked up off the street, but there was, it was a competitive league and uh, just a chance to go play ball.
0: Well, speaking of that, obviously the past couple of years, the NFL has been doing some games over in London and whatnot, but back then, how would you say the game of American football was accepted?
1: Well, they loved it, but I don't know if they really understood the rules. It'd be like, it'd be like if, cricket was a game in America. No one would watch it, but we wouldn't know the rules, you know? And so sometimes when the ball would be punted, they'd be going, wow, look at the ball how high can the ball go? They didn't really understand the rules, you know? And so, but I think they've played so much football over there now through the world league and through all the NFL teams that I think everybody kind of gets it. And eventually there'll probably be an NFL team over there. And that's probably the goal of, you know, Roger Goodell and all that kind of stuff. So, Uh, That'll be interesting if that ever takes place, but, um, but for us, you're, you're, you're trying to play. And I was grateful for me that I'd been in Minnesota. So um, I knew the system in Minnesota. It wasn't like I had to go learn the system uh, when I came back, a totally different system. That's hard to do. So I was very comfortable with Minnesota system because I've been under it for for like four years.
0: So fast forwarding here, you know, you end up going to Washington and whatnot, but, the man you just mentioned there, Brian Billick, tried to wine and dine you to come to Baltimore, but you end up going to Tampa with another former Minnesota coach, Tony Dungy. What was it about Tampa going into that
1: that said it felt right for you? Yeah, well, originally when Brian got the job, they're trying to make a trade. And then Washington gave up more picks in a, in a, in a trade. So I went to Washington and I had no choice in that sense. So then when I became a free agent, um, they were making a move, and, and I, had, I had three different options: it was Kansas City, Baltimore, or Tampa. And basically, the the most secure contract for me was in was in Tampa. Uh, the numbers were similar, but it's structured in a better way for me to go to Tampa. Um, and it was also, you know, Baltimore just won a Super Bowl, and um, and Tampa never had. So I felt like the fit for being the first quarterback in franchise history for Tampa, that'd be kind of cool to be able to pull that off. But I thought my style of play kind of fit either, either franchise great, but I just felt like that was going to be the better fit for me at that time of my career.
0: Well, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned about the structure of the contract and I don't care to get in the numbers. I'm not the IRS and all that stuff, but were you a guy that tried to learn the business? Because I say that, because, you know, guys get agents and everything else, and sometimes stuff happens. But were you guys to learn the behind-the-scenes stuff so you knew what they were talking about, whether it be your agent or the GMs and all these people?
1: I had an agent. We were together for 15 years, a guy named Phil Williams. So we had a great trust and a friendship. And so I trusted him in the contract negotiations. He told me everything that took place. Uh, sometimes you don't want to hear some stuff that the general manager say about you. So that's why you have an agent and instruction contract, right? But no, I, I didn't get into all that. As, as long as the contract, we, we went through all the numbers of every particular team or whenever any contract came up, and that was his job to handle that. And then he would tell me, and I would either agree or disagree uh, if we should do it or not, and, and, but we were always on the same page. But I did but, not get into the particulars of trying to be an agent myself. That's, I think that's too much.
0: Okay, well, it's good that you had somebody that you can trust to help you on the business side. That's for sure. But I mentioned about the Super Bowl, Tampa versus Oakland. You mentioned playing against Rich Gannon and such. So when you I heard when you first met John Gruden, he declared war against your first team defense in Tampa. So what did he mean by
1: that? Yeah, you know Tampa had a great defense. Obviously, we had three guys make Hall of Fame with Warren Sapp and Darren Brooks and John Lynch, and hopefully a couple more, and Rondé Barber and Simeon Rice, and and but we had a slew. We had a lot of great players on offense too. And Tampa's always been known for their defense and stuff. But we had a lot of we had a much better offense than people give us credit for. It's just a perception, to be honest with you. So we wanted that respect, and so we we're going to make it tough every day in practice. If we can win, you know, you know if The plays are they, you know, this competitive, you know, and so, but we had a lot of guys, Pro Bowl players, and and uh, but every day was going to be, we're going to compete hard, and you better come ready, put your heart head on, and and uh, and make each other better in practice, and be dependable, and be able to come through when we need it. We kind of got in tough games and playing, being able to play in the clutch.
0: Now during that time period, obviously, over a couple of year period, and you went on to beat the Philadelphia Eagles in the NFC Championship game, last game at the Vet here in Philadelphia. But what was it about playing Philadelphia that was always so tough Would you got Tampa and Philly for those couple of years there?
1: Yeah, I mean, Philadelphia, the Vet, everyone knows. I mean, They threw snowballs at Santa Claus, and the field was horrendous. And, I mean, it was terrible, you know what I mean? But besides that, they had a great team. Andy Reid's the head coach. He'll be a Hall of Fame one day, and Donovan McNabb and Dawkins. I mean, I mean, they just they were loaded with players. Loaded. They went to four NFC Championship games and went to one Super Bowl. They didn't win it, but um, you know, I played against them a bunch when I was in Washington because we were in the same division. And Tampa, they kind of had our number. They were our nemesis. Uh, knocked us out of the playoffs two or three times. And for that year, we beat them in uh, in 03. That was the, NFC championship to go to the Super Bowl. They'd beaten us early in the year on October 20th. And I uh, think they beat us 20 to 10, but it felt like it was 50 to 5. And uh, but that day we were prepared. We got better as the season went on and we handled all their blitzes and defense shut them out and we scored what we had to offensively. And it was just an awesome day. And that was the last game that took place in the vet. But there was a lot of respect between those two teams because there's so many great players and so many great coaches.
0: Now, obviously, you are one of few. When you think about the scope of the numbers, as far as guys who played in the NFL, but let alone in a Super Bowl, going into a Super Bowl, how much or I should say, how important was it to try to stay, keep a rhythm of the work week together, but also trying to enjoy the moment because not many people get to that spot?
1: Yeah, it was a unique time. And first I'll say, I went, as a, as a former player, I went to a bunch of, there's all kinds of parties and events that take place the week of the Super Bowl. So when I was not in it, I had done all that my whole life, all my whole career. But I never had been to a Super Bowl. But I went and did all the events. And so so for me that week to go out and see if all the events were taking place, that was not a big deal. I wanted no part of that. And what was unique about our Super Bowl, usually there's a two-week period between the, the championship game and the Super Bowl. Our year there was only one week. So I really enjoyed it from the standpoint of we just – it was a regular work week. You know, we traveled on Monday. We got there Tuesday. was off. And then it was a Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and then Saturday walkthrough, Sunday play the game. So the, the meetings were the same. Uh, the schedule was the same. The only difference was there was a lot more attention, obviously, with the media. And then the hardest part was really just getting tickets for your family members and hotels and um, – those kind of things, because it, it happens really fast to be able to get, you know, take care of all that.
0: And, you know, it's interesting. There's a little fact about this particular Super Bowl, folks, and you can confirm this by this thing called Google. This was the last Super Bowl played in January because obviously 9-11 threw things off that year. But after this Super Bowl, they were played in February since. So interesting little tidbit there. But with this game and the hoopla and everything, was there a big standout memory that surrounds the game for you?
1: It was just – it was cool. All my life, all my life, you know, you're sitting at home, sitting on your couch, and you're watching someone else playing that game. And I remember in 1987, Phil Simms was playing. I was a senior in high school, and he won the Super Bowl and, uh, with the New York Giants and beat the great John Elway, Denver Broncos, and after the game, he said he's going to Disney. And so for all those years, i sat there and I'd watched, you know, I watched Troy Aitman, Steve Young, Joe Montana, um, Brett Favre, John Elway win the Super Bowl, you know. And so, you all know, sometimes a lot of times you think it's bigger than what, you know, than what it is. You don't think it's too big. But I've done the work also. And so to say I got to the Super Bowl and won it, and I got to say, I was going to Disney. It was an incredible experience. But the day of the Super Bowl is a little bit different. Um, you know, I remember Celine Dion singing God Bless America, the Dixie Chicks singing the National Anthem, and Don Shule and Bob Greasy, and Larry Zonka doing the coin flip. And, you know, knowing that the world is watching you play in the Super Bowl game. And all those things take place. The lights are brighter. But when the game gets going, it's just a regular game. It's just a regular game. You forget about the people that are watching. You forget that you're really playing for a ring. You're really just playing the game. But when it's over, it's a great distinction between a winner and not. And there's a, there's a you know, there's confetti that falls on your face and there's a ring that's given out after it's over. And there's Lombardi. It's the brightest silver trophy you've ever seen at the moment. So pretty incredible to say, you know, I was able to, to be a part of something like that.
0: And I know Max was just a little guy and your wife was pregnant with uh, your other son at the time, which is, but that's right. still got to be cool to you yeah, Were able to have your family with you on such a good yeah. moment. But I'd be remiss because I mentioned it in the introduction before I let you go is TikTok at Big Bad Bread and you do the trick shots and everything else like that. What made you say, you know, what? I want to try this TikTok thing out.
1: Yeah, when the pandemic hit last year, we were just kind of stuck at the house, and the family they started doing videos, and I was like, "What is TikTok?" You know, and they they were doing dance videos and stuff like that, and kind of just having fun with. it. And then, so I I, I kind of fooled around on there, and I put my name, Big Bad Brad 14, on there, and said my name, and and you know, I put a lot of stuff on there originally with uh, highlights of my career, or workout videos, and. Those kind of things. And then I started doing these things called doinks, throwing the ball at goalposts. And then I started doing trick shots of making baskets three or four five in a row or throwing a football, doing crazy things. And I uh, just had fun with it. And it's got some attention and uh, it gets me some exercise. And then and, and, um, I just have fun doing them, to be honest with you. And I was outside today doing one for about an hour, just trying to put some shots together. I had fun doing it. And hopefully others can enjoy watching some of the videos I do.
0: And I did mention it here, but I know it's been mentioned elsewhere with you that basketball was your first love as far as athletics, but you had to make that choice between football and basketball, even though he was a two-sport athlete in college. So what is it about basketball that you
1: – Yeah, I, I grew up a ba- basketball nut. I loved it. Uh, I was an all-state player coming out of high school up in North Carolina, and – Kind of want to play college basketball. Ended you know, up playing two years at Florida State, but I mean basketball's something you can do in your backyard by yourself, or you can play horse or pig or one on one. But football is not something that you just <laughs> you go out there and do it by yourself. You know, so basketball is probably more fun sport for people. But at some point, I realized I was going to become a better, had more potential uh, as far as playing at the next level in college and then the pros as a six foot five quarterback instead of a six foot five um, guy that couldn't guard anybody or uh, you know, get too many rebounds either. So I have kind of made the right decision.
0: So, with that, I'd be curious to know. Even though you didn't go pro in that, if we were hanging out in the Johnson household, maybe a beer or two, watching a basketball game. Professionally, who did do, who does Brad Johnson like to watch?
1: Well, my heroes growing up, just let you know, with Larry Bird, and Chris Muller, you know. <laughs> but I, I really just like. I don't have, like, one particular team, to be honest with you. I love just good play. I love, you know, I love when I see team basketball. You know, I grew up a North Carolina fan, um, Dean Smith, Roy Williams, and those kind of things in college. But, you know, obviously I probably watch probably Golden State more than anybody at this time. I just love the way the team played together.
0: But, like I said, if we're just sitting watching a game, you just want to see a good competitive game, right?
1: Yeah, I'm a a Golden State fan. I love the way Steph Curry and all the the way they play. I love the way Steve Curry coaches.
0: Awesome. But last question for you, as far as your professional career football-wise, were you a guy that had a particular habit or superstition that you needed to do for games?
1: Yeah, I think for me, just being prepared. um, As far as that goes, I would always – I studied my playbook like no other especially on the day of games. I would um, – study for about an hour and a half in the morning when I woke up, and then I'd get to the stadium. I'd study for about another hour, and then I'd go take a nap before every game. i found find it like a little dark closet somewhere and take a little nap. And then um, – but games, I, I wore – people kind of know about it. I sweat a lot. And so I'd wear uh, – I wore three jerseys, one for warm-ups, one for the first half, one for the second half, change my shoulder pads. I didn't feel like being – sweaty and soaked the whole time so i changed you know change my shoes socks at halftime too so it was always quick adjustment It was uh it takes a little preparation but i felt better doing that
0: right on and obviously i will have links to his tiktok and instagram as well for the public releases of this brad johnson thank you so much
1: appreciate it buddy. This is Joe Theismann and you're listening to Crazy Train Radio.